which I'd like to draw your attention this afternoon are found in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For her hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, our desire is that your word would transform us. We believe that the words which we have in Scripture are breathed out by you and without error and come in your full authority. And we want to be conformed to your word, to your son. And so I pray that you would give us clarity to understand this passage. Please assist me towards that end. And I pray that not only would we understand it, but that we would be moved in our hearts to embrace all of what it teaches, both men and women, that we would be faithful to you in all of what your word teaches. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. And at the heart of all of the Corinthians' problems that we have read about in this book is a failure to rightly understand the gospel and apply it. And this is seen in all of the problems that Paul has addressed so far. Beginning in chapter 1, he emphasizes this disunity that was taking place within the church, primarily their association with various leaders, exalting one leader over another as if it mattered in regard to their salvation. He also rebukes them because of their boasting. But spiritually speaking, they had nothing to boast in because it wasn't anything they had that saved them. 
but simply what Christ did for them. And he speaks of really their failure to understand the cross. And this was one of really the primary point I'd say throughout the book is they don't rightly understand the cross. In particular, how the cross applies to them. How the cross transforms the way they think and the way they live. He addresses their judging according to worldly wisdom. So they're boasting in their worldly wisdom, but they ignore what God's word has revealed. He deals with this in chapters 2 through 4. Their tolerance of immorality, despite the fact that they've been set free from sin. Their willingness to sue other members who are part of the bride of Christ along with them. In chapter 6. Then in chapter 7, he talks about the fact that they're forsaking their marital commitments in light of the gospel. Demonstrating they don't, they don't understand that they, that, the, that they don't need to be more spiritual. They just need to obey what God has called them to in the manner of life in which he saved them. And then he also addresses their flirting with idolatry in chapters 8 through 11. So despite the fact that they have now been committed to Christ with their life, they're toying with food, sacrificed to idols when they should be having fellowship with Christ, not with idols. So again, in each of these issues, Paul has attempted to show them that the way in which they are living exposes a massive misunderstanding of the gospel. That's at the core of all of these problems. But again, he doesn't just rebuke their actions. That's not primarily what Paul's concerned about. He's concerned about their thinking. He's concerned about their heart. And the same is true in the case here with the issue of head coverings. Now, it seems that what the problem is, is that some of the Christians were over applying a truth of the gospel. Similar to how those who had were uh, encouraging to eating food sacrificed to idols we're actually misapplying a truth of the gospel, exercising their freedom in a destructive manner. So that is, they, they grasp the truth that, of the gospel that Paul taught in Galatians three twenty seven through 28, which reads this, For as many as of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So the point of what Paul is saying is, since all people are saved equally, they're all equal. They're all equal in worth before Christ. Nobody saves themselves. And so the implication is, all are equally valuable in the body of Christ, regardless of race, Regardless of gender, regardless of their socioeconomic status or their heritage. And so the Corinthians, some of them were thinking, by implication, that would mean that since everything has been made new, that would include the structure of authority in this world. If all are equal in Christ, all have equal authority. And this appears to be the reason behind why wives were removing their head coverings when they came to church. Women would come into the worship service with their head covered, and then they would remove their head coverings. Because 
they were now on in equal status with men. Unlike outside in their cultural surroundings, they weren't considered equal with men. So now that they're part of the church, they were emphasizing this equal status. So that appears to be what's going on in this practice. So why is this passage difficult? This is one of the most difficult passages to preach and to understand. And I believe the reason for that is because just the simple reality that this practice of covering of the head is no longer practiced in our culture and in most cultures in the world. Paul was not simply referencing a religious practice, though. He was referencing a practice embraced by most people living in the Roman Empire. So within the Roman Empire, there was already this assumption that a woman who was married would cover their head to demonstrate their submission to their husband. So the question comes up, what does one do when there is no cultural precedent? What do we do if we live in a culture where that assumption doesn't hold? Should Christians start a precedent of wearing head coverings? Some would teach yes. Or should we just forget about this because the practice is merely cultural? Well, I'm going to try and answer these questions um, as we examine the passage before us. Paul begins his discussion in verse 2. He says, I praise you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions just as I pass them on to you. So here Paul signals a transition in his thought. He's just concluded his discussion about eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And now he transitions to addressing various issues uh, regarding the worship service. They were holding to the traditions which he taught them and he commends them for it. However, there were a few other things he still wants to correct. And the first being that some of the wives were removing their head coverings during the worship service. And Paul addresses this problem in verse 3 by appealing to the divine authority that God established at creation. In verse 3, he says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And this really is the key verse in this whole passage. If you get this verse, you understand all of the implications that Paul draws out. And the key word here in verse 3 is the word head. The Greek word is kephale. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled because of just even how Paul uses it in this context here. Head can either refer to um, it, metaphorically, a, an authority figure, a, a leader, or it can refer to one's literal head. And Paul actually uses it here with both meanings in the same context, and that's purposeful. For instance, Paul says, Christ is the head of man. That is, Christ is our Lord. He is our leader. And he says, likewise, man is the head of woman, just as God is the head of Christ. So what Paul is doing is he's appealing to the authority structure in the Trinity that's unchanging. 
And Paul shows by doing this that this structure of authority is not the result of the fall. But it's part of God's design, how he designed men and women to function. So submission to authority, the concept of authority, is not a negative thing. It's design. It reflects the very character of God himself. Which means, this structure of authority is not something the gospel destroys. Rather, it's something that the gospel enables and enforces. Right? So, some of these women were thinking, okay, now that we're all in Christ, we, we, there is no longer this structure of authority. That the gospel wipes that out. And Paul says, no. Rather, the gospel allows this structure to take place as was originally designed in creation. Recognize Paul's clear assertion. Even though the members of the Trinity are equal and unified, recognize there's still a joyful submission even within the members of the Trinity. This was one of the major emphases Paul, not Paul, Christ, Jesus, had towards his disciples. Multiple times, particularly in the Gospel of John, which we studied recently, Jesus makes this statement, this assertion. In John 5, 19, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. But notice also what he says in chapter 8, verse 28. When you have lifted up the Son of Man... Then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority. He does nothing on his own authority, but he is God, which is part of the art. That's the main point of the gospel of John. He is God. But he says, but I speak just as the father taught me. He speaks in accordance with his head, the father. And he who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Moreover, in light of what we just studied last week, Paul says in 11.1, we are called to imitate Christ. Paul says in 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So if we do that, we will follow in that heart of submission to our authorities. Again, what the Corinthians failed to recognize was that the gospel does not destroy this created order. Rather, it enables it. It empowers it to actually be accomplished. The gospel reverses the curse. So remember in the fall, what God told Eve, that unlike in her state in the garden, her desire now would be for her husband. And what many scholars believe is what he's referring to is that now her desire would be to rule over her husband. However, God says right after that, he would rule over her. So the gospel allows this struggle to submit to be wiped away, to be quenched by the power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel brings what sin has broken and puts it back together. So, again, it doesn't just blow everything out and uh, blow everything up and just start clean. Rather, it takes the original structure and allows it to function 
according to how it was originally designed. It unites both Jew and Gentile, making one new man. He doesn't destroy their ethnicity. It enables the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled. It doesn't destroy the Abrahamic covenant. He doesn't erase it and just start over with the Gentiles. It frees Christians from their sin so that they truly can submit to their authorities. Again, it restores the created order. It doesn't destroy it. And this is why Paul says in verse 4, Any man who prays or prophesied with his head covered disgraces his head. But any woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered disgraces her head. For it's one and the same thing as having a shaved head. Paul here addresses directly what their corrupt practice was. He says it's a disgrace, it's a shame. The word means to humiliate, put to shame. So, how is praying and prophesying with a covering a disgrace to one's head? See, if a man were to cover his head, he would be signaling that he is submitting to another, someone other than his head, thereby dishonoring the one to whom he belongs. Maybe by way of illustration, I can explain it this way. It would be like a knight who has sworn loyalty to his king to do homage to some other lord while serving in the king's castle. It would be like a British knight donning the colors of a French lord on a shield. To do so would be a virtual slap in the king's face. The knight is a representative of his lord. He, he's an ambassador of his lord. He does his word, lord's will. And therefore to put on a symbol of submission to another actually shows contempt for his Lord's authority. That's why this is a problem. So likewise, when a wife removes her head covering, she's demonstrating that she is no longer under God's appointed leader for her, her husband. And thereby, she's actually dishonoring her husband. And we see that this removal of head coverings was specifically happening when the woman prayed or prophesied. So by removing their head coverings when they prayed or prophesied, what they were saying, what they were asserting, is that they were not speaking under their husband's authority, but they were speaking on their own authority. But recognize, remember what we had just read in, what, in John, what Christ said. Even Christ did not speak on his own authority, but rather he spoke just as the Father desired him to speak. Likewise, what the apostles taught was not just their own ideas. They were commanded to teach what the, what the gospel was, what the word of God taught, not their own ideas. Pastors, likewise, we are not free to speak our own ideas. We don't speak on our own authority, but we teach what the Bible teaches. If we don't, it's shameful. We dishonor our head, Christ. 
Now, it's been, it's been largely lost to tradition, but actually the wearing of the bridal veil um, goes back to this very idea. When a bride would wear a veil to a wedding, what she was doing was she was communicating her submission now to her husband. She was no long, She was moving from under her father's authority, and when, by putting on the veil, she was demonstrating she is now submitting to another, to her husband. The father would give the bride away, and she would move to the authority of her husband. And the veil symbolized this transfer of authority. And this is why in the Roman Empire, virgins and single women wouldn't wear veils. It was the married women that would wear veils. Because those virgins and single women were assumed to be under their father's authority still. And this is also why Rebecca, when she saw Isaac, put on a veil. She veiled herself when she came to him. And immediately in that context it says, Therefore she went into Isaac's house and they were married. She was communicating her submission to her new authority by veiling herself. So if a wife decided to symbolically uncover her head, what she was doing was she was asserting a shameful rejection of her husband's authority. Which was akin to shaving her head, Paul says. In fact, he says in verse 5, it's one and the same thing as shaving her head. And for a woman in that culture to shave her head was extremely shameful. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, if a Roman husband discovered his wife had committed adultery, he says the husband would cut her hair off, strip her naked, and drive her out of his house. The Greek Aristophanes declared that the mother of rebellious children should have her head shorn. In Judaism, a woman going out in public without a head covering was considered so shameful that it was grounds for divorce. So I appeal to each of those cultures because for the Romans, for the Greeks, and for the Jews, they all universally recognized a woman with a shaved head was extremely disgraceful. And Paul said, when a woman removes her veil in the worship service, it's akin to doing that. That's what she's doing. Paul then appeals to an argument from culture. Everybody in the church understood what the removing of the head covering implied. She was rejecting the authority of her head. So Paul's argument is essentially this. If you think that the gospel gives you such independence that you no longer need the head God gave you, then you should be consistent with your convictions and shave the hair off off the head that God gave you. So if you're rejecting the head God gave you, shave your hair off your own head that God gave you. But of course, he knows nobody's going to do that because it was shameful. But what the women didn't realize is that spiritually speaking, that's exactly what they were doing. And for the Christian, what matters most is what is spiritual. We care about the inward person more than the external. We care about what's going on in the heart inside the person rather than what we display externally so actually it's even more shameful than shaving off one's head the hair off one's head so recognize this lack of submission is a really big deal to paul this is no 
This is no light thing. If in your heart you don't want to remain under your husband's authority, he says, you might as well demonstrate that by shaving your head. Paul's second argument is that the authority of the husband in a marriage was something established in creation. He appeals to creation. For a man should not have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. So he says a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. The point being is that man was created to be God's representative on earth, to rule over his creation. He was God's representative, God's ambassador. And for him to put on a head covering would really be denying that responsibility, saying, I'm not going to submit to my authority. But this is not the case with women. Men and women have the same ontological value. That is, they're equal, but they have different roles. God created woman to be a helper to assist man in fulfilling the task God had appointed to him to rule over creation. And Genesis says she was created to be a helper for him. And the, the, really the, the idea of helper, what it conveys is to fill up what is lacking. So the idea is God recognized that when he created man to be his ambassador, his ruler over creation, he understood that he was deficient. He needed help. He could not fulfill that task on his own. And so he gave him a woman to fulfill that task, help him to complete him so that he could fulfill that task. And so he says, woman is the glory of man because she was taken out of man in order to assist man. Again, this doesn't give her lesser value. They have the same value, but they have different roles. Man was to rule over creation and woman was to assist him. This truth is emphasized in verse 9. Notice what he says. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for man. See, notice how Paul is going out of his way to make these distinctions clear. The very real distinctions that the Corinthian women were throwing off, that they were asserting no longer existed by removing their head coverings. But this was the original created order before the fall took place. Again, the gospel restores this created order. It allows this to take place in a way that um, sinful man struggled with. It restores the created order. It doesn't tear it down. Paul's third argument considers the observation of celestial beings. Now, it's interesting here what Paul says in verse 10. For this reason, a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, that's obscure. It's not expected. But what is interesting is, to me, what's even more interesting than the fact that he mentions angels in this context is that he doesn't mention outsiders. Paul's not concerned about what the removal of the head coverings might communicate to unbelievers who maybe see these Christians. He doesn't care about the unbelievers at all. He actually doesn't even mention what other believers might think. He mentions what the angels might think. 
Well, now, why would he do that? Well, it's difficult to know with certainty, but I believe the best explanation considers a reality that Paul has already brought up in 1 Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. And a few other places in Scripture, Paul makes reference to angels in this same context. Notably, 1 Peter 1.12. You might recall this when we studied this book a few years ago. He writes, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things in which angels long to look. He also, Paul in Ephesians 3.10 says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known, not to just the outside world, but to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He's, he's referring to angelic beings there. What's those words refer to? Also, you might recall, the angels in the, in book, of, in the book of Revelation, chapters 1 through 3, the letters to those churches are not addressed to the churches, but to the angels of those churches, which has led many people to believe that that angels um, have a role to play within the local body of believers. And that even angels have some participation in the worship service. Now consider why the angels would be so concerned about the rejection of God's established order at creation. I think it's because the angels know where such actions lead. They know what happened when Satan rejected God's authority over them, over the angels. He desired to be like God, which led to a third of the angels rebelling against God. And those angels, of course, became demons. The angels saw what happened in the garden when Adam failed to guard Eve and desiring to be like God took and ate. So again, this rejection of authority does not exalt the gospel. It's satanic. That's why Paul goes after this issue. They are embracing a satanic idea. And that being said, in order to guard from misunderstanding and seeing this pendulum swing too far to the other direction, Paul asserts that even though husbands and wives have different roles, they're still equal in Christ. So let's not think that husbands are, um, even though they have a, they've been given headship, that doesn't mean they're more important. Notice what he says in verse 11. In any case, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. But all these things come from God. So he wants, even though there's this divine order, that doesn't make a ontological difference in essence between men and women. They just have different roles. Neither is more important than the other. Instead, what we see here is both are dependent upon one another. They're a unit. One leads and the other supports by making up what is lacking in the leader. Both need each other. And both, note, 
are completely dependent upon God. Paul then concludes with a couple of appeals. He says in verse 11, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. So he's appealing to nature. And he, he asks the Corinthians just to make a judgment for themselves. He personifies nature as this teacher. Learn from nature. What does it teach? What does it teach regarding what is proper and becoming? Now, although modern hairstyles would kind of blow up this axiom that Paul asserts, it has been generally recognized throughout history that women should have long hair and men short hair. But if this observation is still not convincing enough, Paul concludes by stating, okay, even if you don't embrace this idea that nature teaches it's proper for women to have long hair and men short hair, recognize that there still is no practice of women removing head coverings in any other church throughout the Christian world. He says in verse 16, if anyone intends to quarrel about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So that's it. That's his concluding appeal. The gospel does not rip up God's created divine order of authority. It allows it to take place. So, where does that bring us? How should we apply this message, this truth, in our context, where we don't have a culture of wives wearing head coverings? Well, I have a couple of applications. Uh, First of all, I'd like to address the men and then the women. So men, we need to keep in mind that even though Eve was the one to eat first, Adam was the one who was held accountable. Romans 5.12. Because he failed to intervene. He failed to rebuke the tempter. And so, husbands, we need to make sure that we are not interfering with God's command for wives to submit to their husbands. We need to make sure we're not the problem. We're not failing. We need to lead in such a way that it is obvious. Underline that. It's obvious that the, the decisions we are making are not for ourselves; They're for Christ. It needs to be clear. If we're being selfish and sinning in our decisions, we're setting them up and making their role agonizingly difficult. It needs to be made clear. Again, this would be like Adam asking Eve to grab him an apple off the tree. What's she supposed to do in that moment? Submit to her husband? Even though that's playing with fire? We We shouldn't put her in a position... To even ask that question. And so husbands, ask yourself, is it obvious that the ordering of your home, your commitments, your finances, your use of free time are being invested for the kingdom of God? Is it clear that that's why you're making the decisions that you're making? 
Because if it's not, you are tempting your wife to fail. And you will be held accountable for that decision, just as Adam was. And wives, you should feel free to request evidence that the direction of your husband's leadership is for Christ and not for his own selfish interest. Ask him, how, why, what biblical reasons are driving you in wanting to lead our family this way in making these decisions? Don't just say it's because I want to. And, 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 I, and push back and he says, well, God's just put it upon my heart. Say, well, how do you know that's God and not just your flesh? Not as a, not as a sense of rebellion, but you want to help him make the right decision. And you can do that. So as far as for the women, obviously the main way this text applies to women is that wives should wear head coverings. And obviously the main challenge to that is we don't live in a culture where head coverings are worn by wives. And so the symbolism is is lost in our culture. So this begs the question, should wives in our church wear head coverings? Well, I believe that given the fact that symbolism, the symbolism of the head coverings is lost in our culture, to make that a requirement would actually miss the point. I think it would miss the point, not completely, but largely of what Paul's trying to address. So again, what Paul cares about primarily is the submissive heart, the embrace of God's order of creation. The wearing of the head coverings recognized isn't really the issue. It's the misapplication of the gospel that was leading them to undermine God's created order. That's the problem. See, it's not so much about how they're dressing, but what's going on in their heart that's leading them to remove their head covering. And my confidence comes in stating this by recognizing the theology of which Paul defends his opinion. He doesn't develop a theology of head coverings. In all of his appeals, he's talking about submission. The disruption of God's order is what offends the angels. And that's what's at stake. The head coverings are merely symbolic. And therefore, what's of paramount importance is that we don't behave in any way that undermines God's created order of husbands being the head of wives. And so husbands need to lead their wives in a clear, Christ-like manner. And wives ought to make it their primary aim to assist their husbands in that pursuit. I think that's the best way for us to apply this passage. Husbands need to lead their wives in a clear Christ-like manner, and wives ought to make it their primary aim to assist their husbands in that pursuit. And so the question every wife should ask themselves is this. Since there's no symbol of submission in our culture, how can I go out of my way to demonstrate my joyful submission to my husband for the love of the gospel and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Jesus, you paid it all and all we owe to you. You are our savior. You are our head. You're our king. You're the husband of the church. We are your bride, and we want to follow your leadership. 
both male and female. We want to exalt you, not just in what people see, but even more so in what you see in the hidden person of the heart. And so I pray that you would help us to be men who lead their wives in the direction that you have called us to live. And that that our wives would assist us well in achieving that end. And that there would be unity within families and unity within the church so that you would be exalted in all things. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.